All right, well, good morning. Good to see you guys here today. Uh, Today we are continuing our series, uh, Captivated by Jesus, and we're answering the question today from John chapter 2. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn there with me, John chapter 2. We're working through the Gospel of John, and, and we're answering the question today, how do we experience true everlasting joy? How do we experience true everlasting joy? We're all searching for joy. We're all looking for joy. Uh, Maybe you saw the video clip that I put out this week. Hopefully that enticed you to come and and hear this message. If not, how do we experience true everlasting joy? Hopefully that question draws you in this morning as we explore the text. I'm going to read. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. 1 through 12. Well, really 11, so I'll read down to 11, 1 through 11 of John chapter 2. I'll read that, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll dive into the message. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather together, to open your word, to learn from it, Lord. And and as we do this morning, as we explore this this text, help us to learn, God. Help us to learn what true everlasting joy, where we can gain that and what that is. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a pastor, one of the events that I had the privilege of officiating is a wedding. And, and it's been a couple of years now, but one of my college roommates called me up and he said, Casey, I'm getting married. I would love for you to come and officiate my wedding. And I knew this guy really well. We lived together for several years in college and kept in touch afterwards. And I said, of course, I would be honored to officiate your wedding. The wedding was not in the DFW area. The wedding was actually in Huntsville, Alabama. And he offered to, to fly Jen and I out. And I said, you know, we're, we're going to drive. Uh, we we want to go to Nashville afterwards. It was an opportunity for us just to have a, a trip by ourselves without the kids. And, and so we'll, we'll, we'll drive out there. And I had, I had Googled it, uh, you know, the Maps app. And, and when I did that, I saw the number 611. And I thought, oh, six hours, 11 minutes, that's not, that's not too bad. Uh, it's not, not a short trip, but, but, but it's not too long that we couldn't drive it. And so I said, don't worry about the flight. We, 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 will, we will come, just get our hotel room. Now, the night before we were to leave, 
we're getting things ready. We, we go down to Jen's parents' house in Tyler or go over to Jen's parents' house in Tyler or out, out east. And so it's a little bit closer for us to leave from there to go to, to Huntsville. And, and we're getting everything ready the night before. And I said, you know, I, let, me, let me go ahead and put this in the map so that when we wake up in the morning, we're ready to go. And when I did, I realized I made a big mistake. You see, 6.11 was the mileage, not the time. Uh, it was more like nine and a half hours. Uh, we had already planned to get up early to leave, and we had to, you know, pull that back quite a bit more. So we had to get up at like 3 a.m. early to leave so that we would make it there in time because the rehearsal dinner and all of that stuff was going to be that afternoon and that evening. We were able to travel light and fast because we didn't have the kids. The grandparents were going to keep them, and, and, and we made it. We didn't miss any of the wedding activities, um, and we ended up having a great time reconnecting with old friends and making new friends. And, and weddings are, uh, you know, usually like that. They're a joyous occasion, and that's not to be unexpected, right? I mean, it is a time of celebration. It is a time for the friends and family of the bride and groom to gather together and celebrate the marriage that God is bringing together. And if you've ever been married or attended a wedding, you've probably experienced that too, a time of joy. Now, I know some weddings can get a little bit crazy, right? You might have that crazy uncle or that crazy aunt or or something like that. Uh, But for the most part, weddings are a time of celebration. Weddings are a joyous occasion that that we end up going to. And at the end of the wedding weekend, what, what do we say? Man, you know, I wish that this didn't have to end. I know that was something that I was saying as we were driving away from Huntsville. We did, you know, spend some time in Nashville after that, but, but that time there with friends and, you know, I didn't want that time to end. And we all, we all often think that, right? Man, I wish this didn't have to end. And why do we think that? You know, is it, is it because we're lazy and we don't want to go back to work on Monday? Well, I mean, maybe that's part of it for some people, but, but for most of us, it's because we are experiencing joy and we're created for joy. We don't want those times to end. Do you know those short moments of joy that we experience from time to time, the, the joy that a moment, momentarily satisfies our soul, the, these moments of joy, they, they serve as pointers. Pointers to a far greater time of joy, to a, to a greater wedding, to a time where we are going to experience everlasting joy. And we have to ask ourselves, well, well, how do we get to this wedding? How do we experience true everlasting joy? Well, in order to, to experience that, we have to begin at another wedding, not one in Huntsville, not one in Red Oak, not, not your wedding, not your parents' wedding or your great-grandparents' wedding. Instead, we have to get, turn to a wedding that took place some 2,000 years ago halfway across the world at Cana in Galilee. So look at the text beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, the Cana is a small city not too far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And, and it seems that, that Mary and, and Jesus and them, they have some sort of connection to the bride and groom, especially since Jesus and his disciples were there. And so, so think maybe relatives, think, think really close friends um, at this wedding that they have attended. And like most weddings, there was some drama at this wedding. 
But in order for us to understand the drama that is taking place, we've got to know something about weddings in Jesus's day. And so what were weddings like in Jesus's day? Well, weddings in Jesus's day, they were a big deal. And, and you, you, you hear me say that and you're like, well, well, pastor, weddings today are a big deal. I mean, people are putting tens and thousands of dollars on weddings today and they spend years and years trying to get ready for these things. Weddings are a big deal today, but weddings were even a bigger deal back in Jesus's day. They would last for about a week and, and, and a lot of people would be invited and people would kind of come and go. They, they were festivals of joy. It was full of, of close friends and family. There was dancing, there was songs, there was, there was praise, there was sumptuous meals that, that filled the homes and, and the banquet meals that they had there. It was an elaborate feast. It was this huge celebration that lasted not just a day, but a week, a week's time. And the groom... The groom was the one who was responsible for providing the food and for providing the wine. And running out of something, especially wine at one of these weddings, was a major no-no. It was a major embarrassment. It was something that you just, you didn't even do. It could even open a groom up to a lawsuit, if you could believe that. The guests, they, they put their life on hold. They brought, they brought gifts. They, they expected something in return. A lack of provision was not tolerated. It was a huge embarrassment. And so you can imagine, or you can, you can understand the concern that Mary has. You, you can even hear it in her voice when she turns to Jesus at the beginning of verse 3, and she says, they have no wine, Jesus. They have no wine. And when Mary says this, she's not gossiping. She's not saying, hey, Jesus, guess what? They don't have any wine. Uh, I wonder who's going to get mad first. You know, is it going to be, you know, the uncle from the next city over? Or, you know, is it going to be the guy in town who kind of runs everything? Is he going to be the one who gets mad first? She wasn't gossiping. She wasn't looking to trade bets with Jesus about who was going to get mad and who wasn't going to get mad. There, There was this genuine concern for this couple. And she was looking to Jesus and she's hoping that Jesus could do something about it. But what? What does she want Jesus to do? Well, at this point, I don't believe that, that Mary is looking for Jesus to perform a miracle. I mean, certainly she knew who Jesus was. I mean, she's the son of God. I mean, she's the one who birthed him after all. She wasn't looking for him to do a miracle. He hadn't performed a miracle up to this point. Um, she knew he was going to be the Messiah, but, but no miracle had happened. Instead, what I believe that, that Mary is doing is Mary is a widow. See, Joseph, after the birth narrative and some of the other gospels, is not mentioned. And he's not mentioned here in, in the book of John. And so presumably Mary is a widow at this point. Jesus is her firstborn son. Jesus is the one that she's leaning on. Not only that, but Jesus is a carpenter. Jesus would have been quite resourceful. And so I, I believe what she's doing is she's looking at Jesus and she's saying, look, Jesus, I want you to help rescue this couple. Rescue this couple from shame. She's hoping that Jesus is going to do something something to bring rescue. What's Jesus' response here? Look at verse verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now hearing that, you're probably thinking, Man, Jesus, like, you're being pretty harsh. You're being inappropriate to your mom. I mean, this is a guy that we're supposed to follow. I know that that if I said that to my mom, it'd be all over. If my son said that to his mom, well, we'd be going back to the bedroom and getting a spanking, right? I mean, 
We, we just don't talk to our, our parents like that. We don't talk to our moms like that today. But, but is Jesus being rude? Is Jesus being inappropriate? Is he being harsh? How do we think about Jesus' initial interaction with his mom here? Well, it might seem harsh to us. It wasn't necessarily so in Jesus' day. I mean, Jesus, you have to think about the, the speech patterns in Jesus' day, how they referred to one another was, was, slightly, was slightly different than they did today, which means Jesus wasn't necessarily being harsh. Jesus wasn't being inappropriate or disrespectful. I mean, he was being somewhat brusque with his mom, He's meaning to distance himself from, you know, the, the thing that is happening here, this occasion. While his mom is, is leaning on Jesus, Jesus is kind of pushing her back a little bit. And so we have to ask, well, why? Why is Jesus doing this? Has Jesus finally become the rebellious son that we all, you know, were at one point just a lot later in life? Well, the answer is no to that. I mean, certainly Jesus is not rebellious. He's a perfect son of God. He's, he's perfect. He was never rebellious. And said, what I believe is going on is that he's publicly shifting his priorities. Not that he hasn't always had his priority as, as following the Father's will, but here he is publicly making that known that he is shifting his priorities. It is the Father's will that's going to take top priority in his life. While his mom may be concerned about the wine, while his mom may be concerned about this couple, that's not Jesus' main concern. His main concern is his father's will. And the will of his father is leading him somewhere else to another place that he has in mind. And this has caused Jesus to reflect. And if you think about that, you know, weddings and, and big life events like that are often, you know, cause us to reflect. I know that, that before I was married, when I would go to a wedding, I, I, would, I would think, I would, you know, like, who, who's my wife going to be? Uh, when am I going to meet her? Where are we going to get married? Where are we going to live? What, what is our career going to be? How many kids are we going to have? What's our life going to look like? Weddings, big life events, funerals, things like that. Th- these are cause for reflection in our life. I'm sure that, that that's happened to you as well. And, and I think this is what's happening in Jesus' mind. I mean, we can't, can't peer into his mind. We can't, we can't exactly know, but, but it seems that Jesus has something else in mind when his mom comes to him. The wedding has caused him to reflect, to reflect on a future wedding between he and his bride. And when Mary asks him to do something about the wine with this mind on the future, he responds by, by distancing himself. And why is that? I mean, what is coming in the future for Jesus? Well, the reason that he gives for the pushback is, is found in the, the, the latter half of verse 4 when he says, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, to be sure, this is an enigmatic, enigmatic statement, right? I mean, we're like, wow, this is pretty mysterious, Jesus. What are you, what are you talking about? Like, you're talking about this hour. He your mom just asked you to do something about this wine, and, and now you're saying, my hour has not yet come. What is Jesus talking about? Well, what John wants you to do as the writer of, of the gospel is he wants you to, to file that statement away in your mind. For a first-time reader, you, you wouldn't really get it. You wouldn't really know what, what he's talking about here. But as you read through the gospel, John begins to unfold and unpack what this idea of hour means. It's mentioned several more times as you walk through the Gospel of John. And it's referring to Jesus' death. It's referring to his crucifixion. 
and all of the events that surround that. And so here's Jesus. Jesus is at this wedding. His mother asks him to do something about the wine. He starts talking in this cryptic language about his death. He says, my hour has not yet come. What is it about the wine? We, we talk about these, these trigger words these days and we can't say certain words because it's going to trigger people and it seems like you know, maybe this is something that's happening here with Jesus. This, this idea about this wine is, is triggering Jesus. And so what does the wine represent? What is Jesus really thinking about here? Well, when you read through the Old Testament, the prophets, especially like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and and Hosea, you you learn that the wine represents a time to come. It represents a future, future age of peace. And so this is especially so in one of the prophets, Amos, he paints this picture for us. Listen to what he says here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them says the Lord their God. I mean, imagine the imagery that that Jesus is, or that Amos is painting for us here. The mountains, the mountains are dripping wine. The hills are flowing with wine. Ruined cities are are rebuilt. Vineyards and gardens are, are abundant at this time. Protection is guaranteed by the Lord. This is a picture of the future garden. This is a picture of, of Eden, recreated. And Jesus knew that the wine represented this age. Jesus knew that the wine linked to this future wedding that that he was going to have as well. That would be a a future celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 19. There Jesus is united with his bride, which is the church. But Jesus also knew that, that something had to take place before that time came. He knew that that an hour had to come, his hour that he is talking about here, an hour of suffering when he would not drink the wine of this joyous occasion, but he would drink the cup of the Father's wrath. He knew this time was coming. This time was was not yet here, but he knew that this time was coming. He knew that, that the clock would chime sometime soon. An hour that would truly fix everything that is broken was coming. An hour that would remove all of the shame and everything that is wrong with this world. This hour is coming. You see, this wedding is a microcosm. This wedding is a picture of our world. Life is going well. We we are celebrating. We, We think everything is perfect. When we least expect it, something breaks, something terrible happens. Death and disease enter into our family. Moral corruption disrupts the rhythm of life. People that we thought would never do that, well, they did it. The perfect breaks. And it will continue to do so over and over again until the mountains drip sweet wine and the hills flow with it. It will continue to do so until God reestablishes Eden, his future messianic kingdom. It will continue to do so until we sit around the table with Jesus celebrating. We cannot fix this broken world. 
No amount of technology, no amount of ingenuity, no, no, no policies, no president, nothing is going to fix this broken world. We cannot do it. The world is going to break over and over and over again until Jesus comes as the Messiah until he sets up his future messianic kingdom. And so while his mother thought of the immediate, Jesus thought of the ultimate. While his mother thought of the shame of this couple, Jesus thought about our shame. Jesus says the hour to fix all that is wrong, that is broken, that causes shame has not yet come. My hour is not here. But that time will come. This is the hour to which Jesus refers when he answers his mom. Now, how does his mother respond? Well, his mother, in verse 5, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't respond with a rebuke. She doesn't say to Jesus, how dare you speak to your mom like that, Jesus? Do you know who I am? I I I am your mother. I carried you around for for nine months. I birthed you. I fed you. I changed your diapers. I've cleaned up after you. Do you know who I am, Jesus? I'm your mom. How dare you talk to me like that? No. She doesn't respond in that way at all. Instead, she responds in faith. She, She tells those standing by, look, I may not understand all of what Jesus is saying here. But I know that Jesus is going to do something. You guys, whatever he tells you to do, even if it seems strange, even if it seems out of the ordinary, do it. So what does Jesus do? Look at the text starting in verse 4. I mean, in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes this wine or he looks around. He says, look, there's no wine. And he goes to the people and he says, look, I want for you to take these jars, these purification jars, and I want you to go fill them up with water. And then Jesus turns the water in those jars into wine. And it's not just like some wine. It's not just a little bit of wine. I mean, it is, it is an abundance of wine. Roughly 120 gallons of wine Jesus produces here from these jars. Enough for the rest of this feast. Enough for probably another feast to take place. He saves the bridegroom from shame. He saves them from loss. And he doesn't take any of the credit. Right? Here's this master of the feast, the party planner, the guy who's kind of running everything, you know, point guy. Tastes this wine and he comes to the bridegroom. He's like, man, this is some good stuff. Like, I can't believe that you've kept this till now. No one does this. This is unheard of. Jesus doesn't step in and say, hey, man, that's me. I'm the the one who did that. Uh, I I actually turned this water into wine. Like, this is heavenly vintage here. This is me. This is all me. Nobody, Nobody knew. The only people who knew were the servants and his disciples and Jesus, and that's it. Now, 
Now, certainly there's more going on here than Jesus just being this humble hero, right? Indeed, there is. So look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And the glory that John said that Jesus would manifest back in chapter 1 that we looked at last week, he does. This is, in fact, the first of Jesus' signs. Jesus is beginning to, to reveal his glory. And so there is more. But how does this event point to Jesus' glory and to our true everlasting joy? By turning water into wine, by taking the shame of this couple, that Jesus doesn't just tell us, but Jesus shows us. You see, this, this, this microcosm of a wedding here that we're looking at becomes an enacted parable. It's, it's teaching us things. It's not just through teaching, but it's through the actions of Jesus. And so what do we see here? What, what is Jesus showing us? Not just telling us, but what is Jesus showing us at this point? Well, I think the first thing he's shown us is that he's going to take away the shame of the world. Your shame, my shame, Jesus is going to take that shame away from us. And we all have shame because we've all sinned against God, the creator of this universe. We've all rejected God's wisdom for our own wisdom. We've all made foolish decisions. We all feel shame. But Jesus doesn't leave us in our shame. Jesus doesn't leave us to face the Father's wrath. Instead, Jesus comes and Jesus takes the shame of the world away. Not only that, but we also see in this event that Jesus will bring about a future messianic age where the wine will flow freely where life will be joyous, where, where there will be no more worry or, or no more sickness. There will be no lack. Jesus' act simultaneously points back to the prophets and forward to the future to a time of fulfillment. In doing so, he's saying, look, I'm going to bring that time to pass. I'm not going to bring it to pass right now at this wedding, at this moment. But, but all of what I'm doing here at this wedding points forward to this future wedding to this future time, to, to, my, to my crucifixion in the future, where I will take your shame away, where I will make everything right. And you know that I am, I'm capable of doing that because I just took water and I just turned that into wine at this party. You know I'm capable of doing that. Look at the miracles that I'm able to perform. But Jesus not only tells us that he's going to do that, he not only shows us that he's capable, but he also points to how he will bring about this future messianic age. Notice what Jesus used in verse 6. Six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. The Jewish rites of purification was this form of, of ritual cleansing so that, so that you might be able to go to the temple and, and enter into the presence of God. And if you didn't cleanse yourself, you couldn't go. You could not go and enter into the temple. You could not go into the presence of God at all. And Jesus looks around. And he says, sees these jars that were reserved for purification. They're empty. The water hasn't even been purified in them. They're just, they're just empty jars that are reserved for that rite. And he tells these servants, says, go, fill these up. And then once he does, once they do, and they bring them back, he immediately turns water in them, the water reserved for purification, into wine. What does this reveal about how Jesus will bring us into this future messianic age? Well, well, it reveals that Jesus will bring us into the future messianic age, to this future wedding by purifying us. And he's not going to purify us with water. We're not going to wash with water and go. He's not going to purify us with wine. 
No, he's going to purify us with what the wine represents. Jesus will bring us into this future messianic age by drinking the cup of the Father's wrath for us. The cup that is reserved for us. The cup that that we are to drink because we have sinned against God. Because we have rebelled against our Creator. That cup, Jesus says, I will drink in your place. And I will drink that when my hour comes. The Father's wrath, He will drink. We know this refers to the Father's wrath in John 18, 11. Put your sword into your sheath, he tells Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And Jesus drinks this. He spills his blood on our behalf. And all of those who, who believe in his name, as we talked about last week, as, as, as they believe in his person, as they believe in his work that he has done on their behalf, all of those who believe in Jesus' name, they are purified. They are able to stand before the master of the feast and be accepted instead of shamed. They are able to join the celebration at that future wedding feast because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. And Jesus' first miracle then is a sign. It shows his glory. It's a sign. It's a pointer to this future messianic age where the wine will flow freely in abundance, where there will be peace and prosperity and safety, where there will be true everlasting joy. See, aren't we looking for that? Aren't we looking for true everlasting joy? Don't we long for that? Well, in Jesus, we can experience it. The true master of the feast, the Lord of the wine, the one who provides richly and and abundantly for us. He is the one. And in him we can experience this true everlasting joy. He's the one who drinks the Father's wrath on our behalf. So that that might be the case. He's the one who purifies us by his blood. So that that might be the case. And so don't seek joy in the world. Don't seek true everlasting joy in this world. Don't run to your career. Don't run to success or fame or or fortune or relationships or even your own family. We experience joy in some of those things. That joy is, is momentary. That joy goes away after a time. And that is the joy that we experience there is just a pointer. It's just a pointer to this true everlasting joy that is to come. The joy that is found only in Jesus. He is the one who can bring us to this future wedding and this future kingdom. And it is there that we experience true everlasting joy. And so don't, don't seek joy in the world. Instead, turn to Jesus. And when you're tempted to seek joy in the world, remember that you can sit amidst all the world's sorrows, sipping the, sipping the joy of the coming kingdom because Jesus sat amidst all the joy Sipping the coming sorrow, sipping the coming sorrows. Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath for you. Jesus spilt his blood for you so that you might be able to drink the cup of everlasting joy instead of the cup of the Father's wrath. And a God who would do that for us is a God that should captivate us. Jesus, Jesus should, should draw us in. The joy that he offers should draw us in. The joy that he secures for us should draw us in. The joy that is found in his kingdom and his kingdom alone should draw us in. It should captivate us. You see, Christianity is far from a joyless religion. We often get that wrapped. 
Oh, I don't want to become a Christian because it's joyless. I've got to follow all these rules. I've got to do all this stuff. There's no joy that is there. Christianity is far from a joyless religion. Jesus, who is our Savior, his first miracle points to our joy. His life and death are meant to secure our joy. Jesus wants you. He wants me. He wants everyone to experience this joy. This is why Jesus has come. So don't be content Don't be content with the short moments of joy, the glimmers of hope that you experience in this world. Don't be content with that. It's not what Jesus has for you. Instead, turn to Jesus and experience true, everlasting joy. So do you see that? Do you believe that? Will you be at the future wedding in the kingdom to come, drinking from the true vine, experiencing true joy? Has Jesus captivated you?